3: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
0: Well, hello. Hello. How was your Easter? It was fine. I feel like maybe we are not in touch enough. Why do you say that? Well, because I told you just before we turned the mics on that I'd been to Nice. I went on a fantastic holiday to Nice for Easter. You said, oh, I love Nice. You seem to be very au fait with Nice. But we I failed to communicate beforehand that I was going. I would have got lots of travel tips from you. But some years ago I recommended
1: it as a holiday destination to you and you were kind of sniffy and snooty about it and said, oh, no,
0: it's very touristy. We we prefer to go somewhere more authentic. That that, that sounds entirely characteristic of me to say, to ignore. I, my wife would say this is, this is sort of totally in character to, you know, pour scorn on someone's advice and then do the, <laughs> do the same thing myself. But I have so much to tell you because I feel like I'm, I was channeling the man on seat 61. So did you take the high-speed train then? Yeah, and it was, honestly, it was fantastic. And I've done a lot of research while on the trains. Mm. The thing I want to talk to you about is the food. Oh, la la. Because I think, okay, we we know lots of the problems with British trains, expensive and old stock, etc. All of that is true. And actually- It's about the rolling stock. The rolling stock, yeah. Not the food, not the cheese sandwiches. But- There's something about the cafes on French trains. First of all, they've got a lot of space, the cafes. So they've got spaces to sit where you can have like a little coffee. It's like a cafe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I just think we've got to improve the food on the British trains, don't you think?
1: Definitely. It's been a joke forever. I remember the two Ronnies making jokes about British rail cheese sandwiches.
0: sandwiches, I remember. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. But why is the food so bad on British trains? It's almost like the whole of British cuisine has moved forward 40 years in the last 40 years and British (laughs) food on trains is still where it was. Maybe they should make a feature of that. British trains is where you go to get your retro food. Yeah, maybe it would be better. But honestly, the local trains, incredibly cheap. I know this is like, everyone knows all this. You know, incredibly cheap, incredibly efficient. We didn't have a car. We were staying in Nice. We didn't have a car. You know, you were able to take the train to the... Beach to villages nearby. It shows what good train service can do. So you're a convert to the long distance train holiday, then? Yeah, no, I, now I really am, and it's quite a good thing to do with kids of our age. I think it really made me a convert to the man on seat sixty one, though, too. So where else has turned up in your research then? Barcelona, but I think you can get to Barcelona in a day. Is my is I think what the man on seat sixty one says. Anywhere else you'd like to
1: sojourn to? I'd like to head north. I'd really like to um, get to know Germany a bit better. I've not spent that much time there. It just seems like such a great country. I'm going there for family reasons. I think I might have mentioned this to you at the end of May. Is that you inviting me along with the family? No. Uh... Well, our episode this week, we're going down on the farm. Yes. Have you ever milked a cow? Mm, no. Have you? I have, Yeah. I had a friend at school, Wendy Waller, who lived on a farm. I remember going and visiting her and uh, and going and sitting on a milking stool, and I, I enjoyed the experience. I'm not talking about like industrial milking machines. I think you'd get a lot out of it, just the connection between man and beast. You on a stool. I'm trying to remember whether I might have done. It seems like uh, a photo
0: op. Mm. The answer is still no. Would you like to? I sort of worry that it's not consensual. No, I don't. I think it wouldn't. It wouldn't contribute to the cow's happiness.
1: I think if you looked it in the eye while you were doing it, Mm. spoke in a soothing voice. I think, I think. So if any of our listeners have a cow, you would decline the invitation.
0: Mm. Were you ever an Emmerdale Farm viewer? Not really, no. I was a big Archer's listener as a child. Oh, that's interesting. Did you not know that about me? No, I didn't. It's amazing that after so long, there's still things you don't know about me. Yes. Uh, No, a big, big Archer's listener. In fact, I was such a big Archers listener that when I was living in America, my aunt used to send me cassettes of the Archers. Wow, pirate copies. Yeah. Smuggled (laughs) across international borders. Contraband. (laughs) Uh, Archers contraband. Wow. But I have not listened to it in in years. So what got you out of the habit then? Gordon Brown. Yeah. As with (laughs) many things.
1: So, yes, this week we are talking about sustainable farming. In the UK, agriculture accounts for around 10% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So transforming the way we farm could have a hugely positive impact on the climate. But we rarely talk about it and we're going to fix that. We're going to be talking to Lydia Collis from Green Alliance, Minette Batters, from the National Farmers Union. And finally, to Jyoti Fernandez, who is from the Land Workers Alliance and is also an agroecology smallholder. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? My reason to be cheerful is Sarah's brother and his wife and their kids came over. So we did lots of touristy things including a new attraction that's opened in London called the BBC Earth Experience. Have you heard about this? No. It's in Earl's Court, and it's an immersive experience. Basically, what it is, is a load of enormous TVs. You get to be surrounded by all this incredible BBC nature footage. Blown up, huge. David Attenborough provides narration. And it's just a real treat to see stuff from that archive presented in such an exciting and wow. futuristic way. Well, that's really worth knowing. Do you not think the BBC should motion capture David Attenborough so that they can just keep generating content? What does a motion capture mean? Like they have done with Abba, so they could make a not an avatar, but an Attenborough avatar. Mm so we can have him forever. Mm, that's a good idea. I also think the Labour Party should do that with you, obviously. Oh,
0: thank you so much. Um, <laughs> what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, you know I like to report on this podcast about my cooking experiences, and I have a positive experience to report, which is mm. being in France, I did a little bit of chefery, and I made – what do you view frittatas? I get a bit bilious on an egg. <laughs> Right. Oh, dear. Uh, well, then you won't be going for this. Anyway, I made a very successful onion and thyme frittata from a New York Times recipe. And there's a particular interesting trick, which maybe is not a trick, which is to soak the onions. It kind dials down the flavour of the onions a bit. I'll tell you who loves a frittata. Yeah my mother-in-law,
1: Lynn Barron. She's one of these people who can't abide waste. So if she sees you about to, yeah. say, throw away the stalk of a piece of broccoli, she says, don't throw that away.
0: I'll put it in a frittata. Maybe I should send her a frittata. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it travels well. think Federal Express? Yeah, in a jiffy bag. In a jiffy bag. Do you think it, what do you think it would be like at the other end? Do you think it's allowed to send a frittata?
1: I, d- I don't know. Is it I mean, if you're allowed to send cassette tapes of The Archers across but the? It might be kind of impounded by US customs. I think if you opened an envelope and there was a frittata inside of it, you might think you were on the receiving end of some kind of hate crime.
0: Oddly enough, I made a frittata for Charlie Faulkner about a year ago, and he was very successful. And that was without soaking the onions. There were no onions, I think.
1: Why don't you um, anonymously post a few frittatas and and see what happens? Yeah. Okay. Like random acts of kindness. <laughs>
3: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: Well, to help us wrap our heads around this subject, we're going to start by talking to policy analyst at the Green Alliance, Lydia Collis. Hello.
4: Hi, thank you for having me on today.
1: Well, thanks for taking the time. And one of the things that Green Alliance looks at is how to cut emissions from agriculture. So maybe, maybe we could start by just getting some of the headline facts and figures about the impact that farming specifically has on our environment.
4: Yeah, of course. In the UK, about 12% of our annual emissions are because of food production. But globally, the figure is more like a third. A third of annual emissions are attributable to food production. And the UK figure is slightly lower because we import lots of our food. Agriculture is the leading driver of habitat loss. And it's these woodlands, these wetlands that wild species live in. The loss of them is the main reason that wild species are declining. In the UK, agriculture is also the leading cause of water pollution and even air pollution in cities. Between about a third and a quarter of that is thought to be because of agriculture.
0: And you talk about the contribution, Lydia, of farming to climate change. Can you just explain a little bit more about where does that come from?
4: Mm, Yeah, of course. So we talk a lot about carbon dioxide in terms of climate change. But actually, in farming, the main greenhouse gases are methane from livestock and nitrous oxide both from peatlands and from fertiliser. And we get emissions from farmed peatlands um, because in their natural state, they're flooded and they don't emit. But once we drain them for agriculture, they then become big emitters of nitrous oxide.
0: And just, is that the farting cows?
4: Yes, that is ruminant livestock emitting methane. Yeah.
0: Ruminant livestock is obviously the polite way of putting it, Jeff, Is that right? I like that you went straight in there with burping and farting. Well, I think, you know,
1: I think we've got to sort of you know call, call a spades. A spade, oh if you'd yeah. have said ruminant, I would have just nodded and not, not known what it meant. And, and that 12%, is there a hypothetical, best practice, most sustainable way what, what that number could look more like?
4: So overall, we actually need the land sector, so agriculture as well as land use in the UK to become a net sink. And that is because at 2050, when the UK has set this target that we're going to be net zero in terms of our carbon emissions, there are still going to be some industries that emit carbon like aviation and actually meat production is likely to still be net emitting at that time. So we need the land sector to be a net sink overall when we look right across the country in order to offset those emissions so that we are net zero And the way that that becomes a net sink is by really expanding our woodlands, which sequester carbon out of the atmosphere, and by restoring wetlands and species-rich grasslands and all of these other habitats on some of our land.
0: And just talk to us a, a little bit about the idea of ELMS, which is the environmental land management scheme, which is something that the government has introduced. And that's the idea of I think it's called public money for public goods. Just talk to us a little bit, Lydia, about that idea because that's obviously arisen partly from the end of the common agricultural policy, which was something that we had in the EU.
4: So the environmental land management scheme or elms as 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 it's called is the new agricultural policy in England, and it has this underlying idea that farmers will receive payment for public goods. And this is really important because even though it's a farmer who will make the decision to plant a woodland on their land, they don't directly benefit just themselves from that. The benefit of that woodland is felt by all of us right across society, right across the world in terms of the carbon sequestration that it delivers. So ELMS is in development. We're seeing it rolled out gradually. And there are three different strands to it. One of which, that we at Green Alliance are most excited about, is the Landscape Recovery Scheme, which is funding large scale restoration of habitats, which can have huge benefit for nature, as well as storing carbon, offering flood mitigation, we actually think that farmers could see their incomes increase by more than 20% if they went down this line of blending income from these environmental outcomes alongside a bit of food production on some of their land.
0: And how controversial, and we're going to talk to Minette Batters from the NFU, National Farmers Union, how controversial has ELMS been, and particularly this third pillar, been with the farming community?
4: I think this has been a very difficult time for the farming community because of uncertainty, where they knew that the old payments were being phased out gradually, but they haven't particularly known the detail of what's coming in to replace that. At the moment, the way that the subsidy regime Works under the EU policy meant that the largest farms got most of the money. So, under the basic payment scheme, half of the money went to 10% of the farms. So, most farms can actually benefit under a system that distributes money differently. But for those farms that were doing very well under the old system, they may well not receive as much public subsidy under a new system. So there's just all sorts of dynamics going on in terms of how different people are affected. Um, But I really think that uncertainty has has played into what might be perceived as quite a negative reaction from farmers.
0: In your Green Alliance vision of land use, how much less meat production would be involved and Because that's obviously going to have big implications for the current farming community in terms of the transition that you're envisaging.
4: So in the short term, there's actually potential to reduce emissions quite a lot if we look through a carbon lens without diets needing to change massively. And that's because some land is not very productive. So in England, 10% of farmland produces just 1% of the overall calories. So that 10% of land could be focused on storing carbon, on restoring nature without having a huge impact on food production. And so that's what we see happening by 2030. We've also got a biofuels policy where cereals are grown that are then used to make fuel for surface transport, like cars. And the way that cars are going to be decarbonised is, is by making them electric. So biofuels isn't a useful policy. Then when we look more towards 2050, what we imagine to happen is that processed products are likely to be replaced with plant-based foods, rather than things that come from an animal. What we imagine is that most of that processed meat will be replaced by products that don't come from animals. So people will still enjoy their Sunday roast that that is lamb or is chicken, but it's those processed burgers, sausages, or your um, microwave lasagna that that we imagine uh, will be replaced by products that don't come from animals.
1: So in terms of the changes to the way that we farm. We've talked a little bit about land use. What about crops? Are the crops that we should be switching to that are going to be more sustainable?
2: So
4: I think less important to what crops we're growing is what those crops are used for. So if a crop is directly eaten by people, then um, that is people being fed on a relatively small area of land. Whereas if that crop is fed to livestock, before then people eat lamb or beef then a much larger area of crop must be produced in the first place because that's a much less efficient process going via a cow or via a sheep before people eat the grain.
1: We can't separate biodiversity from the climate crisis. Just just while we've got you, what good news have you been hearing about uh, the return of different wildlife? and The return of the beavers. The beavers are back, are they? I think
0: so, yeah.
4: The beavers are back. I think we should hold out huge hope for nature because of how quickly it can rebound when we give it a bit of room to. So the marsh harriers, white-tailed eagles were extinct in the UK, but now now they're back. Golden eagles are nesting in the Lake District, having not nested in England for, for over 400 years. So there is potential for nature to come back really quickly once the pressures on it are alleviated a bit. To give another example, bitterns, this amazing wetland species, were down to just 11 pairs in 1997. And now there's more than 200. And that's just in 25 years. So the rates of growth that there can be are huge.
0: Can I just ask about the beavers? Because someone was telling me the beavers have these sort of extraordinary ability to sort of do their own nature restoration. Is that right?
4: We call beavers ecosystem engineers because they really change the landscape because they will coppice trees and then you've got these trees that block up rivers and change the flow so you've then got a more wetland sort of area and that is then good for loads of other species in the area.
0: How come the beavers do what is sort of you know the right thing if you see what i mean what is the is that what is the reason for them doing that why is it in their interests if you see what i mean (laughs) what's in it for the beavers says ed
4: i mean then they've got their habitat where they live and, and where they have their young so right um it's about yeah creating the habitat that that suits them
0: now we've got on the podcast a rather dangerous concept which is called the jeffocracy which is where jeff is the Supreme and he claims benign, but I'm doubtful. Ruler, we're appointing you minister for F- farming, minister for land use. What title would you like, Lydia?
4: I think my chosen title would be the minister for nature restoration. If I'm if I'm allowed that one,
0: minister for nature restoration is that acceptable to you, Jeff? Going to get the business cards printed up for you. Not taken by anyone else. Brass plaque for the door. It's happening. What would your first act or two be?
4: As Minister for Nature Restoration, I would want to take this environmental land management scheme budget and put a third of it into the landscape recovery scheme, as I was talking about earlier, which supports this larger scale creation of habitats. And then secondly, I would take some of those new areas that that, that we're creating, which are really rich in nature and carbon storage, and dedicate them as national nature reserves that people have access to reconnecting people with nature is going to be a really beneficial part of this process.
0: And just to be clear, when you say a third of the ELMS budget to this purpose, well, how much of it will be going on it at the moment?
4: At the moment, less than half a percent is going on landscape recovery.
0: Less than half a percent? Is that the third pillar then? Yeah. So the third pillar is half a percent?
4: Yeah, because a lot of the Elm budget is still currently going on the direct payments of the Common Agricultural Policy because they're phasing out by 2027. The other half of the budget, some of it is actually currently unspent. It's not managing to be gotten out the door quick enough. But of what is being spent, a lot of it is on the countryside stewardship scheme.
0: So interesting. Jeff, does Lydia get the job? Yeah, I, t- I told you the business cards have been printed as we speak. Well, look, it's been really fascinating to talk to you. You've really given us a really good background in, in what we're talking about uh, this week. Lydia Collis, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're
3: looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Minette Batters, who is president of the National Farmers Union. Minette, thanks so much for joining us.
3: My pleasure.
0: Could you just start by describing who the NFU represents how, how many farmers we're talking about across the UK just paint a picture of the diversity of, of, of the people that you represent
3: We're the Union of England and Wales and we represent 47,000 active farming and growing businesses Really across all sectors, so everything from horticulture to poultry to dairy and across all land areas, and very much focusing on creating if you like you know a great policy environment for food production, for the environment and for nature.
1: And the NFU recognises that climate change presents huge challenges to farmers and their livelihoods. How will they need to adapt to the changing conditions?
3: Well, this is seismic and, and, and a huge change. We actually said we could beat the government target by 10 years. That was something that I said back in 2019, that agriculture with the right policies, the right incentives in place, could get to carbon-neutral food production by 2040. Now, at the time, I have to say, there there was a a fair amount of nervousness. It is a sector whereby, yes, we are a source of some emissions, but we can do something about it in a way that other sectors can't. And so, although nervousness at the beginning, I I think genuine excitement now, and I have to say, on the back of the war in Ukraine and massive inflationary costs on on energy – actually how we produce our food, how we become more efficient, how we become more more energy secure. The policy framework offers a lot of the solutions.
0: Talk to us about what some of those solutions are in, in your view. Just, just give us a little guide to kind of what you think needs to change and how that might happen.
3: I guess there are three parts to our thinking, really. The first bit is very much focusing on call it productivity, call it efficiencies, because it's how do we produce the same amount of food on less land with less inputs? So how do we decrease, if you like, the food production footprint? The second part would be really focusing on, I guess, nature-based solutions. Definitely planting more hedges, locking down and sequestering more carbon in our soils, And then the third point would be renewable energy. This really is, I think, a massive opportunity. We've got farms, we've got a lot of rooftops in very rural places, the ability to export into more of a localised grid, turbines on farms, not only the solution for sustainable energy on farm, but exporting into a a more localised grid, which in many cases we don't have the ability to, but we should have going forwards.
0: There's obviously been a big change, Minette, in the support that is given to farmers. Lydia explained to us that there were three pillars to the um, Elms payments, and her worry was that the nature restoration payment pillar was very small, half a percent of the overall budget. What's your view about the nature restoration part of this? Is that something you support? Is that something that you've got worries about? How do you see things?
3: We've got, I suppose, ever greater demands from our land use. You know, we've got a finite amount of land and we've got to deliver more on green energy. We need to be producing more of our food and we need to be doing more for nature. So I have to say how it's set out at the moment, it really does look like the budget is going to go nowhere near far enough to to what is needed. I think what we've got to do is to create what I would call a new economic model on water quality, on biodiversity net gain, and eventually on carbon credits. So I don't think we can have an either or here. We've got to be producing food, and we've got to be doing more for nature. I think the food production bit for me has been what has been missing out of the approach so far. What I started and said at the beginning, these are businesses These are businesses, the more we can have profitable businesses that are producing food, they can do ever more for nature. That's what needs to happen.
0: Now, one of the things you raised earlier was the role of renewable energy for farmers. And lots of people will have seen solar panels uh, around the country springing up. This is obviously providing an important income for farmers, concerns have been raised about solar panels and the extent to which it's using up our land. Although I think I'm right in saying that it's actually a very, very small proportion of land that is being used. Give us a sort of farming perspective on this question.
3: If you are a farmer on X amount of land, if you put in a solar farm, the index link locked in for 25 to 30 years is a very sensible and constructive business decision. I think, though, what we have to weigh up particularly in the land use framework, is what amount of land do we want to sacrifice to solar? What amount of land must we absolutely maintain for producing food? But more importantly, you know, what more can be done on our rooftops? Any building that goes up now should be having solar put on the top of it. And it's inexcusable, really, that it doesn't. So farms offer a lot of opportunity in very rural areas to be providing actually affordable sustainable electricity in those areas
0: I think I'm right in saying also that you know you can have solar farms and also some of the land can be kind of uh, have other uses as well at the same time
3: It can I mean people do graze sheep uh, under solar it's it's difficult if I'm honest and you, you we really want to be focusing on solar on less productive land
0: you're at the sharp end of all of this. What would you say the mood of your members is both about the current situation, but more sort of looking ahead? Because I can imagine that there is quite a lot of uncertainty and quite a lot of a sense of, of sort of change that is coming. You talked eloquently about the challenge that climate presents.
3: I think there's a lot of nervousness. We are seeing businesses contract. You know, If I look at comparisons between now and 2019, we've got over 7,000 less registered businesses. So it's, it's very uncertain. Farming is, is a long-term business. So much as the decisions were made last summer as to whether to plant tomatoes, cucumbers, apples, pears, Those decisions were made then, again, for livestock. You know, we're about to start lambing at home. I made the decision to put the rams in, in November last year. And so farming is long-term. It's not a tap that you can just turn on or off. And it's producing something that has a shelf life. Farming has to keep going 24-7. And so the focus of being able to get a fair return for what you're producing is absolutely fundamental.
1: Minette, can I just ask, as, as well as being president, you yourself are a farmer. And just, just from a personal point of view, I mean, obviously, it's been a, a challenging few years uh, for farmers in, in a lot of respects. But when you think about the changes required or, or a more sustainable form of farming as we head towards net zero, what, what optimism or positivity do you feel about that as a farmer?
3: As a farmer, I feel Enormous excitement! I think there is a real opportunity for the UK to lead. uh, I think the global revolution of climate smart agriculture and how we produce carbon neutral food. The challenge for me, uh, and if you like, the, the the problem that I'm facing into is I've got to excite people. I've got to excite members of the government that we are the solution to all of this. There is a real opportunity for us. And, and that's the tough bit is exciting others. That's why we committed to net zero 10 years early. That was to, to say, look, we can do this. And that did open doors. 70% of our country is rural. It's just waiting there to be turbocharged. But it, my goodness, does it need a government that wants to work in partnership with it?
0: Just to end, give us the sort of biggest reason for optimism.
3: What do we need, you know, in in this very challenging situation with an ongoing war in Ukraine? We need more sustainable green energy. The ability now for farming, not only to produce carbon neutral food, but to produce the fibres on which we rely, the packaging. We can do this out of agriculture so it 's not just about carbon neutral food production it 's about sustainable living and the opportunities that that we have from all of that. If we get that bit right, the ability to restore nature to be more for nature more for wildlife is within our grasp but i I think for too long, we have seen the rural economy as a backwater. And this, to me, is the time to drive that probably most important revolution that, that our world has seen, because now it is the challenge of energy security, food security, water security. Who can do that? You know, the farmers can do that. And all we need is, is the clear ambition from our partners to want to work with us, and it can be done.
0: Well, look, it's been great to talk to you, and we're really grateful because we know you've got an incredibly busy schedule. So, Minette Batters, thank you so much for sparing the time.
3: My enormous pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: With us now is
1: agroecology smallholder and campaign and policy coordinator for the Land Workers Alliance, Jyoti Fernandez. Hello. Good morning. Hello. What time were you up this morning?
2: Oh, uh, pretty early. I had a group of lots of people from Bristol come here to stay on my farm and learn about farming and help me out. So, yeah, we woke up really early, got some porridge and got the animals all fed. It was great. I had this
1: idea. Why don't farmers get up a bit later? It would just, to, to me, it would make the job a lot more appealing.
2: <laughs> well, there's something nice about when you, when you work on the land, um, being connected to the, the rhythms of the day, actually. Yeah, it gets you up and then you're tired at the end of the day and you go to sleep. <laughs> it's really nice.
1: So, so tell us a bit about you and your background and how you got into farming and, and uh, what, what your small holding is.
2: I came from America and my family were farmers from India, you know, in the previous generation before my parents and my mother's family was farming in Iowa. Um, But I moved here to England and, you know, together with my husband, we decided we wanted to have an occupation that did something really positive. We wanted to build a positive alternative and we wanted to have our kids on the land and have nutritious food for them every day. So we decided to become farmers. We took out a loan um, and bought some land in beautiful, beautiful Dorset. And we didn't really have farming skills, so we went to lots of different farms. Um, We worked with farmers of all different types to learn the skills to be able to farm. And we saved up and slowly, bit by bit, built the housing on our farm. We generate our own electricity here, and we produce organic vegetables. We have a cider apple orchard. We've got um, loads of plum trees and pear trees with sheep underneath. We've got milking cows, um, and we sell everything to the local community. And it feels really great to be a part of being able to feed people nutritious, healthy food.
0: Tell us, Jyoti, why did you feel it was necessary to set up the Land Workers Alliance? There are other existing organizations that represent farmers like the National Farmers Union. We spoke to Minette Batters earlier. Why was that important, the Land Workers Alliance?
2: What our farmers union does is support the concept of agroecology. And that's the sort of farming we practice here on the farm. One where, you know, we use it as a tight circular system and reduce our use of inputs, but we have huge amounts of biodiversity. We look after our soil, and we have loads of trees all over the farm as well, so that they sequester carbon and provide habitat for wildlife. We also represent foresters, small and family farms, so people that work with nature conservation. And new entrants to farming, and we felt that the NFU has a very broad remit, and it you know it supports a lot of farmers who do use more chemicals than we do, or might export. But we're really focused around the voices of the small and family farm that really try and practice agroecological practices. There's been underinvestment for decades in the local food economies. Um, you know, a lot of support for overseas trade agreements, but you know, we wanted to think about our local food systems where we can distribute through. Um, you know, community supported agriculture projects through local markets, through box schemes and supplying local schools and hospitals, but also not really provide more support for genetically modified crops or industrialized agriculture and that kind of thing. And we felt, you know, we needed to make that voice stronger so that, you know, the farmers doing the sort of farming we need get the support they need to really flourish.
1: And can I ask, one of the things we hear a lot is that meat consumption is incompatible with reaching net zero. What's your counter to that?
2: Well, we represent all sorts of land workers, you know, from foresters to people who grow peas and beans and pulses in the UK, um, to people who grow loads of fresh fruit and veg. But we also represent people who keep animals as part of mixed farming systems. And you know, our, our union has very strong stance that overall we should be producing less meat as a society and people should be consuming less meat, but that there's a very important role for livestock within mixed farming systems, and particularly your traditional smallholding. We need livestock to be providing for our conservation grazing on wildlife meadows. We need livestock to be using the parts of the system that are waste products within a system. You know, like if you've got arable production, you've got all the byproducts and co-products of that. They can recycle very effectively those waste products within the system. So we want to have them as part of these mixed farming systems. And livestock are important. It's just that we need a lot less of them. We're completely against factory farming and industrial farming of meat.
0: Now, you took issue very much with the recent book by George Monbiot, Regenesis, um, and you wrote an open letter to him about that. Really leads on from Jeff's question. Just just sort of explain kind of what your issue was, but some of our listeners may have read the book, and indeed we had him on the podcast.
2: Yeah, I, well you know George is a good friend of mine, um and you know I agree with you know ninety percent of what he says. But I think in what he was putting forward, he didn't make an adequate distinction between industrial livestock and livestock kept within agroecological systems, peasant farmers, livestock, and the important role that that livestock plays. And actually when you scale that up, it can have a tremendous impact on livelihoods across the world if you don't think about the importance of those people on a very small scale who keep livestock as part of their traditional um, farming systems. They might be small-scale dairy producers in India. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm from an Indian heritage, and in India there's 90 million small-scale dairy producers. And, you know, 75 million of them are women. Most of them have two to four cows and they hand milk those cows. It's very much a part of their cultural identity and, and it provides a huge amount of nutrition security for their families and their communities. Um, and, and those people are, are completely dependent on that income from small scale livestock. If on a global picture, we say all livestock is bad, even though all of those cows are actually fed on waste products, if those people have to transition out of their livelihoods, then they really suffer a lot in terms of you know going into poverty. Um, there's very few transition programs that do something else for them. And often the transition, you know, when an economy moves from a peasant economy where we've got this kind of traditional livestock happening, um, people move into really high consumption lifestyles, and we see the impact of that all over the world. You know, I think one of the solutions to climate change is actually thinking about our lifestyle, how we work in harmony with the land and how we feed ourselves in harmony with the land in those systems. So I think it's just putting forward that it does have an important role to play.
0: I just wanted to ask another question, because we talked earlier on the podcast about the environmental land management um, payments, ELMS. Do you have a perspective on that?
2: Yeah, I'm on the Elms committee now, um, and you know, working with other colleagues trying to develop Elms. Um, we were really pleased with the fact that you know that that we're removing the basic payment scheme um, in our union because we felt like it was being distributed largely on the basis of how much land people uh, owned rather than what they did with the land. But we felt that a reform of the system was necessary because we needed to encourage farmers to be producing things in a way that supported biodiversity and wildlife, that looked after the soil, that, you know, supported holistic farm management, you know, much more like, you know, even on a larger scale, the way we're managing our small scale agroecological farms, you can also practice agroecology and think about the system on your farm as a whole, um, looking after the soil as a starting place and then moving through the different ways we can move away from nitrate fertilizers, which have an enormous impact on climate change because the emissions move away from the kind of manure management systems where we get loads of runoff into our rivers, which cause huge amounts of pollution, reducing the use of pesticides, which are killing off our insects. What I feel like we can do even better than what we're aiming to do with the environmental land management scheme is support our fruit and vegetable producers um, to make sure that we are supporting young people who want to go into growing fresh fruit and veg, or or older people, whoever, anybody in the community, to grow fresh fruit and veg that's directly accessible by anyone, not just those in the highest income brackets.
1: What are the ideas around engaging the public on this, you know, when people are busy, and it's something they don't give very much thought to?
2: Well, does really care about food you know most people eat food three times a day hopefully and in many cases people eat that food with their family or their community and it does have meaning in their lives you know and and it's become more of a commodity And it kind of is integrated in an overall look at where our economy is going. You know, it is is a broader issue because right now everything's led by the market. You know, they say if you want good quality organic food, you have to pay premium prices and consumers should be educated to pay more for their food. And actually, I think it it needs to go the other way around where where we think, how do we make this food affordable and accessible without bringing in loads of cheap imports and, you know, relying on factory farms, but, you know, good quality food and guarantee a fair livelihood. And that might have to do with government intervention, but also making sure that people understand themselves as food citizens, you know, that they have time to enjoy that food. And it means thinking about the excess rents people are having to pay these days, you know, having a four day work week, so people have more time, you know, it's all integrated in overall rethinking our economy and, and where we go forward in the future.
0: L- let's end Jyoti on the brand of this podcast, which is optimism. Mm -hmm. Why are you optimistic about the future of farming and and how can it help us address the climate crisis?
2: Well, I feel extremely optimistic about where we're going as a society by being a part of Livia Campesina. So our farmers union here in the UK is a part of a global farmers union. We represent 200 million farmers across the world, peasant farmers, indigenous people, small scale family farms all across Europe, all together trying to create a better food system. And it's not just people talking about it, it's people every day out there on their farms producing food. And the agroecological farming practices that are union practices have been documented to provide 70% of nutrition security in the world. And we're engaged in a huge amount of advocacy to promote agroecology to say that we have a way forward which can actually cool the planet because agroecology looks after the soil. We promote agrobiodiversity, which is the huge variety of different seeds, trees, plants and livestock, which is very, very resilient to climate chaos. We've got the knowledge and skills. That model of agriculture can grow. And if governments can get behind it, if people can get behind it, we can grow and actually provide the basis of our future food security while cooling the planet at the same time.
0: Well, look, it's really inspiring to talk to you, Jyoti. Um, If you ever need somebody to be a worker on your farm, Jeff is definitely available. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I need to check my ical.
2: <laughs> I mean, he's
0: not the hardest of workers, but um, he he'll keep you cheerful.
2: Yes, sounds great. Yeah. Keep me cheerful <laughs> is a good idea.
0: <laughs> Jyoti Fernandez, thanks so much.
2: Yeah, thank you. Have a nice day.
0: You know what I think is so interesting is that land has not been part of the conversation for so long, I think. Mm. In an era when we weren't concerned about the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis, it's almost like land was just sort of taken for granted and not thought about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That 12% is such a significant percentage. Why do you think that is? Because it's almost like it's been taken for granted as part of the furniture, if you like, and in a sense, I think that's sort of that's kind of double edged because it means that farmers' needs and issues and difficulties aren't really discussed, and the effects of farming aren't really discussed either. I thought Lydia laying out the background is quite an important sense of of what the challenges really are. And as we heard from Minette as well, you know, there are sort of multiple challenges that farmers are facing. You know, there's there's a food security challenge, there's a climate crisis challenge. There's a preservation of the countryside challenge. It's very easy to have a discussion about the climate crisis. We mustn't leave out the biodiversity crisis that is so important. I also think there's something about how most of us
1: we don't really give that much thought to how our food is produced, and our idea about what a farm is is often a, a bit cliched or Farmer Giles ish. And talking to Obviously, there are very modern technological solutions that are going to play a part in net zero. But also, in some ways, Jyoti's vision of more sustainable farming, which we've drifted away from, even though we might not think about that as people who never go near a farm, actually provides a lot of the solution in terms of biodiversity and sustainability.
0: I think it's really interesting. And, you know, the whole debate about what does sustainable foods, sustainable diets look like, I I think that one of the things that is just lacking in this is proper public information about that. Yeah, I think if you're trying to make informed choices as a consumer, it's just incredibly hard. And I think sort of one of the things that the Climate Change Committee is always saying is government should do more, at least Just to engage the public Mm. on on these questions. And hopefully, you know, by us like talking about it on the podcast, we can make our contribution to that.
3: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
0: Now, uh, oh, we're in the outro ho ho. Now, I know you you didn't really commit to the. Sorry, sorry. Okay, okay. We're in the outro ho ho. (laughs) We (laughs) are. I sort of lost my touch, I it think. Um, now, I know you have scepticism about my entrepreneurial abilities, but bear with me here. Okay, okay. I feel like one of the dragons in Dragon's Den here. When I was living in the Amer- America in the 1980s, late 80s, I was very struck because I shared a flat with somebody and he used to do this, what was then a very odd thing, which is that he would go outside, go out, buy a coffee and then bring it back. I would think, that's so weird. Why would you not just make a coffee at home? But I remember coming back to the UK and thinking, great, these coffee shops are really going to take off. Somebody should do something about it. Well, lots of other people did, not me.
1: You're just laying the ground here to prove that... Yeah, exactly. ...that exactly. you are a
0: maven, that you can see the trends coming. Exactly. Anyway, so we went to this coffee shop called Café Frey in Nice, F-R-E-I. And you know what? It was so interesting because it. you know how most coffee shops you just... You can have an Americano or a cappuccino or whatever it is, right? but they had coffees from all around the world that you could have. And flavored coffees. It was like a sort of specialist coffee shop, and apparently these are massive in Hungary. Don't you think there's something in this? No. Or you think it's saturated? I you
1: think no, it? no. I, th- I think it's a, it's a different thing. I think in New York you identified a new behavior. Yeah. Whereas this, I've been to coffee shops where they've got three bags of beans out and said, "Which one would you prefer?" Mm. And I don't want to make that choice. And then when they start describing, this one's got a well, one with a top almond one nettles with nettles, well, and well, <laughs> Our one night. with almond, one with cinnamon, yeah, one yeah. With, you don't no. I d- I d I I don't want to make a choice. Why don't you want to make a choice? I want a coffee. I do not find mm. that if you're ever put in that situation, basically you're just picking one r- randomly to make the interaction go speedily.
0: Okay, raid right on my parade then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank our guests, Lydia Collis, Minette Batters, and Giotti Fernandez. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer,
1: supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gal Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Sieg composed the music. James Deacon made our idents, and our artwork was designed by...
0: Henry
1: Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been...
0: Reasons to be cheerful. Planning for your next trip?